Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Up North Prevention Podcast. Here you will find cutting edge information related to substance use issues through interviews, educational content, and helpful resources. For more information, please visit us at www.upnorthprevention.org. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Good morning. So my name is Lisa Anderson and I'm the chair of the Live Well Kalkaska Substance Free Coalition. And with us today, we have my um, trusty partner who is the coordinator of the Live Well Kalkaska Substance Free Coalition, Suzanne Prentice. And then um, if Tim Hudson, if you'll introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Tim Hudson. I am a behavioral health consultant with uh, the University of Michigan Medical Schools, Michigan Opioid Collaborative. I cover the 21 Northern counties here in Michigan. Thank you. And Tim Shoecraft, if I could have you introduce yourself. I am uh, also, I'm with uh, Michigan Opioid Collaborative. Great, welcome. Well, this is Coffee with the Coalition, um, which is a less formal format community discussion to talk about things that affect Kalkaska County in the world of substance use disorders and related matters. And uh, we don't really have a guest speaker today, but I'm going to blatantly use you all because I have a couple of things that I need to get done for my job. So. I decided earlier this morning, we'd do sort of a little informal focus group. And um, I'd like to start the discussion off by just throwing out a question. So I'm a certified prevention specialist, which when I got the job four years ago, I had no idea what I was getting into. Who knew? And there is actually um, degree programs that you can get at universities in prevention. So, um, there are actually different kinds of prevention specialists and the broad definition of prevention is trying to um, stop or prevent something from happening. So I'm a SUD prevention specialist, but there's ones for um, suicide, there's ones for pregnancy, there's ones for uh, dropout, uh, there's all kinds of things. So usually it's a negative situation that we're trying to prevent. Um, what I'd like to know today is in the world of, of substance use disorder and addiction, uh, what does prevention mean to you and who, did, who does it affect? Um, um, so go. <laughs> go ahead, Suzanne, why don't you see, I'll pick on you. What do you think? prevention is? Um, well, I think that substance use disorder affects anyone, um, any family, doesn't matter, you know, the demographics, how, mu how much money you make, um, you know, religion, uh, I don't know, just any, anybody, you know, there's, there's no lines to it. And our family is proof of that. Um, as far as prevention goes, you know, it, it's prevention can consist of uh, educating youth um, about substance use disorder, about um, what it can 
caused, you know, where it comes from. But I believe that it also has to do with educating families. Um, as we know, substance use disorder is typically triggered by genetics and by um, adverse childhood experiences. And I think it's important to educate the family on how this, this starts. Um, and, and that's a form of prevention. If, if we educate parents you know, when they're young and even about their own substance use disorder and their own ACEs and what has caused, you know, what they're going through, even mental health issues, I believe that we can provide prevention for the next generation. So what are some good ways to educate families? And I'm thinking that not only parents, but grandparents, aunts, uncles, anybody who's walking and breathing is what my philosophy is. <laughs> well, and Tim one and Tim two, feel free to jump in anytime if you have a thought on, on what you've learned about educating the population on these kinds of issues. <laughs> well, my, my experience has been that the population generally doesn't want to be educated on these types of issues. Um, I mean, personally, when I hear substance use disorder prevention, I hear the same thing as like diabetes prevention or um, cancer prevention or depression prevention and as far as I and my unprofessional understanding can say is like some things just can't be prevented uh, I mean, it's down to like a genetics level or just like environment or just too many variables to really be able to take in like too many variables to take into consideration to actually prevent. Yeah. Do you um, think, Tim, that a lot of people think, oh, it's never going to happen to me? You know, I mean, that's like the same thing with, well, like when you brought up diabetes, diabetes, or, or even let's talk about nicotine addiction and dying from cancer. You know, I'm going to take my chances because I'm going to be the one in 27 that doesn't get it. As far as substance use? Yep, substance use or whatever. Oh, I mean, oh yeah. I mean, I, I'm in recovery myself, and I know there were points in time where I thought to myself, well, well I can't get addicted. I, I, in fact, remember while crushing pills, saying to my friend, like, I don't, I just think I can't get addicted. Like, in hindsight, it's just like, look at what you were doing. Sure. At that moment, you, you should probably be able to reality check that and say, well, actually, maybe I am. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I, I, I know from my own personal experience that I thought that exact thought. Did you have, um, like, any of the lovely things like D.A.R.E. in, in oh, school? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you probably remember all the good, uh, this is your brain on drugs commercials. Yep. Um Obviously, those things didn't have a huge impact on you, correct? They they did. Dare made me want to use more. <laughs> I've heard that before. 
I have. I have heard that before, depending on who the... And there's been data that shows that there was a complete flop. And um, if you look more, um, even broader than that, the whole war on drugs concept was kind of a a flop um, because it's not the, you know, drugs are an inanimate object. (laughs) So... um, it, they they should have approached it a different a different way. So a lot of this stuff is marketing. I mean, honestly, with prevention, I think. Um, what do you? Oh, what just do you, say no was one of the most genius marketing campaigns I've ever seen. Like people, kids today that, that weren't alive for it know what that is. Right. Um, I mean, it's it's three simple words that like conveys. A message of impossibility, but like a message of profound emotional, uh, like to family members or people struggling with the substance use, like it, it, it is now the embodiment of the, or the epitome of like the stigma that can come around with that. Like, why can't I quit? I, I'm writing that down. Message of impossibility. Um, I know with the just say no. Shoot, even when I was in college and I'm a bit older than you, you know, um, as we were sitting around playing drinking games, you know, we'd laughingly say, just say no. And it became more of a of, of a punchline than a, a, you know, campaign tagline. That's why I'm always kind of a little suspicious of, I hate buzzwords. And, you know, I guess taglines have their purpose to get branding and visibility out there, but yeah, if after a while, you know, they get turned around. And that's, I think, what happened with the just say no, is it got made fun of. So, um, well, that's so, message of impossibility. So, so um, what I get paid to do is kind of futile. I think it is. I, I honestly don't, but my personal, this is just my personal belief, is rather than the big campaigns and everything. And so Timothy, you know, listening to your story and stories have power in my experience. And it's still those personal stories. um, Although traditional prevention specialists will tell you that, no, it's not a good prevention strategy to have people in recovery go to the school and tell their stories. Um, I think I tend to disagree with that. So, Tim Hudson, what are your thoughts here? You know, when uh, Tim is discussing, you know, when he thinks of it, he thinks about people not wanting to learn. It made me think about a, a couple of things and some conversations I've had recently with, a, with uh, someone. But what I see is very similar than I think he put it perfectly. Um, I also see a, a very much uh, many people feeling it's like an us versus them mentality of, okay, people who have addiction disorders, they're, and then they list like stereotypes right. that they perceive. And those are the only people who have a use disorder. Uh, <clears throat> I was talking to somebody recently about the, the amount of drinking that she does. And her response to me was, well, I don't drink. I drink just as much as my friends, not anymore. As if that was like a medical diagnosis criteria right. for somebody who could have a use disorder. Maybe he's just doing something that's not safe. Right. Uh, and I, I think a lot of people probably feel that way. And I don't think people 
when people say they want to learn about it, it's because they're, they're, they're picturing the stereotype. They don't want to look at themselves. You know, I hear a lot of people say, well, I couldn't possibly have a use disorder. Or my loved one couldn't possibly have a use disorder because they work or, you know, they, they have a home uh, as if, again, that's the criteria to, right. uh, to have use disorders, not to be able to, to have those things when many people in fact do. Sure. When you talk about prevention, you brought up DARE and that, when you first asked that question, uh, that was one of the things I was thinking of as well. My experience with prevention was in fifth grade, I had DARE and then I never heard about it again. Uh, anything related to the dangers of substance use till I got to college, lived in the freshman dorms. And, you know, there was a, a all male floor and it was all about, okay, here's things you need to be careful of when you're out drinking and going to parties and things like that. But it really wasn't prevention. Um, it was more CYA type type conversations. Exactly. Don't get in trouble. Yeah. Don't do something that's going to get you arrested exactly. uh, and embarrass the university and get right. the, the RA in trouble. Uh, but prevention is something that shouldn't just be this, okay, that started in schools. It should be a continuous thing um, because people may have different experiences and trauma in their lives. We talk about ACEs frequently uh, during the coalition meetings. You know, that's not always just at a very young age, trauma can continue through life where you may need prevention services to come in and assist. Um, as far as who it impacts, obviously we know it impacts the individual, their families, but I also think about the impact it has on systems and organizations, uh, you know, not just community, but companies, organizations, uh, from a system standpoint, uh, we've essentially created uh, people who fall into that category, like they're their own system and that they're kind of pushed aside from the rest of society instead of being brought in as a whole uh, and trying to find ways to help in, improve their lives and improve the community. So, you know, when you bring up systems, that's another one of my pet peeves because, you know, prevention <laughs> gets the smallest part of the pie in the budget dollars typically um, in the machine that is substance use disorder. And let's face it, there, there is um, a system that, that um, on the commercial side of the house makes money and there's a whole industry of um, keeping people addicted, whether it's alcohol, now we've got marijuana, or whether it's prescription drugs, or whether it's illicit, illegal drugs. Um, and then on the other side of that, we also have a whole industry that's job is to um, treat and, um, you know, counsel, and in my case, prevent uh, substance use disorder. And so, you know, so many yesterday on the news, I noticed that in Michigan, they just passed um, a new bill and they were all happy that, um, and I only caught a little bit of it because I started to stomp around and get mad, but we could, they, um, they, they upped the percentage of alcohol in um, like canned beverages. So you can get a canned mixed drink now that has more alcohol per volume. And it's like, hmm. For anybody, <laughs> you know, and honestly, even from a business standpoint, it's like, okay, if you get a stronger drink, then wouldn't you buy less? I mean, that's how I think about it. Because if you're somebody who's addicted, you typically look for the most bang for your buck, you know what I mean? And so you buy something that you don't have to buy as much to get as much of an effect. However, um, 
the the liquor industry lobbyists, as with the marijuana lobbyists, are so powerful and they get these things passed. I mean, right now, and it, it's been, this isn't new, but they're trying also to um, get it so that bars can stay up until four o'clock rather than two o'clock. And that has come back and forth for a while, but that bothers me because, you know, usually nothing good happens at a bar after midnight anyway. <laughs> And to make it four o'clock, um, especially where where I live here in the village of Kalpaska, it's it's going to be really really not good. It's going to cost law enforcement more money. Blah blah blah. So you know this push and pull of our societal norms, and I don't like politics, and I don't like um, the politics that goes along with taking on those systems. Although I'm finding the need to that to truly make a difference, that's what we have to do is those systems changes, those, those um, law changes, you know, those lobbyists and those big industry people, that's the people we, because they're, they're the influencers. They're the influencers. And um, so, you know, here in Kalkaska, <laughs> we do. We're, we are, I joked about it a while back before it was legalized, but we're making a name of, for ourselves in the village as the marijuana Mecca. And people are traveling from other places to come here to buy their pot. And those that are strictly of a, of a financial gain profit kind of place, you know, they think, oh, that's great. We're making money. We're making money. We've had other places if you read the paper in Traverse City the last I don't know a couple of days ago or whatever um it's been kind of stalled but places in Traverse City are are getting kind of bent uh, because the, the the rules have not been finalized for their marijuana outlets and they're losing money over it you know why should Kalkaska get all the money? <laughs> well, it's also causing problems and it's starting already, um, whether people realize it or not. I'm getting more calls about um, younger and younger kids getting caught with marijuana in school. Um, and, you know, I don't want to, we can debate marijuana on another day or whatever, but I'm just saying these conflicting forces make it really hard to be a prevention specialist. So I appreciate what. Tim, Tim S said that yeah, it, it is kind of it is kind of futile. It's kind of impossible when you've got these stronger forces um, battling against you. So, anybody has any good, uh, um, you know, senators in their back pocket that they can point me in the right direction? <laughs> I'm glad to talk to them. Tell them what I know. Is that such a thing? Oh, not really. You know. <laughs> <laughs> the one, you know, like I said, after this last year, I'm way more pessimistic about politics than I ever have been in my entire life. And on the flip side of that, because of my pessimism, I've also gotten more involved personally. And um, and I do think that's part of the key is personally getting involved and and not being afraid to get in front of those um sort of high level stakeholders and, and saying what you see. Um, I'll give you an example of that. So four years ago when I got this job and I was in a Grand Traverse Coalition meeting, I was talking about how my mother was addicted to um, 
oh shoot, what the heck was she on? She was on it for 15 years. And it's a pretty benign painkillers, tramadol. She was on tramadol, which, you know, in the scheme of things, it's a low level one, but it does have, it's an opioid. Um, and, and I knew she was addicted to it because um, I told her, I was like, mom, you've been on that stuff way too long. And, and, you know, I knew she was addicted when she told me it wasn't just for her aches and pains. It was, she's like, well, it just really helps me get through the day. <laughs> and when people say something like that, then you know, you know, it's not so much a medical reason as more of a psychological reason. And when the opioid epidemic first hit, she happened to move from Traverse City to Wisconsin and they did, they, they cut her off or, or significantly reduced the amount of her prescription. And it took her a year and a half to wean herself and get off of that. And it was a tough, she's like, oh, I feel so crappy every time I don't take it. And I was like, well, mom, that's called withdrawals. You know, my mother's 75. Well, I told this doctor at the Traverse City Coalition that he's like, oh, tramadol isn't anything. That's just like taking Tylenol. And I was like, no, it's not. And, you know, here's the guy with the PhD and, and I argued with him and I felt a little bad about it, but I, I, I'll tell you that same doctor has now said that doctors help create this problem. Doctors need to help solve it. And uh, he's one of my biggest and best advocates um, in the battle against, you know, overprescribing. So, you know, I've kind of learned that, yeah, you can't be afraid to speak out. And, and sometimes it's just your gut instinct. You know, it truly is. If something feels wrong, it probably is. But, yeah, and I mean, um, like I, I used to have the same sort of perspective as that doctor did, um, not on tram at all, but towards like marijuana. Um, like it would it'd be almost a, a joking point when somebody would say that they have an addiction with marijuana. Um, and then when I, I worked in uh, an FQHC uh, clinic for a while, and multiple patients came through that we worked with that um, had marijuana as their primary substance. And I mean, I saw effects similar to those that I've seen on people who have a, an opioid addiction. Um, and it really was a, a real paradigm shifting um, learning moment for me. It was just like, who am I to minimize somebody's addiction? Um, because the suffering is the same. Good point. The there's no, there's no like worth addiction. I mean, the only thing that comes in there is like the, the harm reduction points of view where with an opioid like heroin or fentanyl, it, it's like Russian roulette. Right. And that like any given use could, could kill you. Um, and so it's got that like acute danger, acute harm, but like addiction is addiction and, and addiction is hell. Yep. And you know, I can bring it back then to what I'm talking about, about these forces that I kind of feel powerless against. So as far as marijuana, you know, the, the advertising and the marketing for marijuana is, is something that I think that's and they've been at it for a, a long time. First of all, that, oh, it's got all these 
you know, health benefits, you know, okay, nobody wants anybody to be in excruciating pain. That's why we prescribe prescription painkillers. So it wasn't too far a leap and whoever decided that, you know, this was the way to go was brilliant when you think about it, that, okay, yeah, we don't want grandma who's dying of cancer to be in excruciating pain. So let her, you know, let her poke up and, and be happy and, and live the rest of her life. Well, and before you know it, the whole idea of medical marijuana um, as a painkiller took off. And even people who were pretty vehemently against it said, well, yeah, it's okay if, you know, they're using it in a, in a chronic disease kind of a thing. <laughs> you know, and I talked to, well, I used to talk to a lot of kids who would say, well, if you look at the studies, well, the only studies that are really available because the United States wasn't funding any studies for marijuana are studies done by the marijuana industry. So what do you think they're going to support? They're going to support manufacturing, selling, and using more marijuana. Um, but this idea that it's somehow natural and healthy and less dangerous, you know, even that's why when I really get wound up, um, the, the legislation that the state of Michigan approved which was a lovely little deal called regulate marijuana like alcohol, which right there, that was so misleading. If you read the whole darn thing, it's not regulated like alcohol, not even close, and it'll be years before it is, and who knows how much damage will happen after that. Um, you know, we don't have the infrastructure yet that alcohol does, like the Michigan Liquor Control Commission, which by the way, they've cut them down in their numbers, you know, I was wondering during COVID, it's like, all these bars that are supposed to be either not open or observing this or that or the other, none of that's happening, especially up north here. Well, that's, I found out the Liquor Control Commission has been cut by like, I don't know, 60% in their compliance part. In other words, the people that go out and check. Now, one person, if one person has, you know, 21 Northern Michigan counties, yeah, it's a good bet that there's not going to be a whole lot of bar closing going down for whatever reason, you know, whether it's selling to minors. And that's true when, when you know, both uh, marijuana and alcohol, in fact, the guy in the Record Eagle happened to say in the marijuana discussion, he's like, you know, I can remember back in the day, everybody knew which, which party stores would sell to minors. He's probably my age, because that's true. Everybody knew which ones in Traverse City. I'm from Traverse. And, he's, and he said, what I'm afraid of is the same thing is going to happen with these marijuana outlets, is after a while, the word gets around. Oh, they don't check. This is weird. Um, a friend of mine uh, from Traverse City, who shall remain nameless, came to Kalkaska to buy her product. And I happened to run into her and say, what are you doing in Kalkaska? And she's like, oh, I'm here to buy my pot. She's like a certain business that shall also remain nameless gives you a 10% discount if you have a medical marijuana card. Now her card was expired. It didn't even, so they're getting around, that's the difference between medical and recreational is the price, really. You know, if, if you got medical, then you get pay less taxes. But they figured that out here in Kalkaska and they give them a 10% discount if you ever had your card and you can show it. It's like, hmm, that sounds a little not right to me, but um, 
but the guy in the in the record eagle said that yeah he's afraid that youth will find out which one of these places aren't obeying the law and if we don't have that that enforcement that compliance part set up and we don't who's watching who's checking you know oh it's a good faith thing nobody wants to lose their license because they're expensive so they're just going to do everything they're supposed to do okay <laughs> Sorry, not buying it. Um, we already have problems with smells. Yeah, that, pers that perspective leads me to ask that uh, cliche question, especially in substance use disorder treatment, of just like, yeah, how's that been working for you? Exactly. Because has that been the case ever? Right. Uh, right. I mean, one thing I can say, because like I'm, I'm personally, I'm, I'm fairly torn on. Uh, the legalization of um, recreational marijuana. Uh, I, I do think that the, the system is going about it very poorly. Um, but I mean, I remember like back to the dare days of learning, being told that marijuana was a gateway drug. Um, if that is the case in my situation, it's only because I had to go to a drug dealer to get it. And the drug dealer had other stuff. And I may not have ever been exposed to those things had I not had to go to a drug dealer to get it. Um, but I mean, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, so what we've been in this now, the three years, it was, two, I guess, four years, 2018, when, when it got legalized. My deal always was, is, I'm for decriminalization, but I'm not for all out, you know, um, recreational legalization with, although, you know, I mean, honestly, it, you talk about, um, where is it? Uh, Vancouver, I think it is, where they've done some great experiments as far as, and this goes right into the harm reduction, is you take the illegality away of a lot of harmful substances and you reduce the amount of people who use them overall, you know? <laughs> so is, is the illegality part of the thrill for some folks? I think yes, in, in some cases. Well, I don't necessarily know if, I mean, I'm sure there are situations where thrill is the appropriate word, but I know that our current system with decriminalization of it traps people um, where you get a felony. I, I lived in Arizona for 10 years and any testable amount of THC is a felony. So you don't even actually have to have marijuana on you. You could have a pipe and then you have a felony on your record. And that is going to come, you're going to carry that with you for the rest of your life. Um, It'll hurt your chances of getting a job, an apartment, um, all of these things. It'll be, it'll be a, 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 the, the scarlet letter um, because, you know, when you were 19 or 20 years old, you had a pipe or maybe you had a bag with some in it. Um, but that is a, a lifelong stress that, like, I mean, it can... Oh, well, really, and, and you yeah. look at it from a situation of somebody who's already suffering with substance use disorder, and then they get that felony on them. 
it, it sets their chances back so much further to be able to grow. Yeah. Like our system is set up where if you have a drug charge, you can't get federal student loans. Isn't that like the opposite of what we want in recovery? Um, and so like the criminalization of it, it, it perpetuates the problem. I agree. I absolutely agree. And that feeds right into that whole adverse childhood experiences. You know, if, if you're a child that has a parent that has that, um, you know, let's call it a bowling ball around your neck for all your life. Cause yeah, you got caught with a bag in your car in Arizona in 1994. And, um, you know, now you'll have a felony on your record forever. So you, all you can get is, is very, um, low paying jobs. And, um, so your child is never going to have the advantages of, um, you know, somebody who makes more money on and on and on. And then that just, you know, the, the situation snowballs and perpetuates and, um, yeah, that's, that's, you know, so back to what is prevention. Um, so I think it just, I'm thinking out loud here. When, when a teenager is made to understand what the laws are in their, where they're living, do you think that's a deterrent for younger people? I don't either. Um, you know, young folks have this, uh, eh, well, I'm pretty smart. I'm not going to get caught. <laughs> I'm bulletproof. Um, or, he, or it's just not, I mean, it, it, there are a lot of things in place, like laws and, and systems level things, like voting or anything like that. Like, it, it is just a, a, a thing that the youth, youth don't have the forethought or the consequences planning of long-term thinking that like right like they're not they're 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 they're, uh i can't think of the system it's what we talk about in the michigan opioid collaborative all the time with addiction where like the reward center and the the prefrontal cortex that says like hold up stop think about this it isn't fully developed and so they don't have that same long-term thinking um, and so, I mean, it's it, it's not even necessarily, granted, there are certainly times where it's just like, oh, I'm, I'm better than them, I won't get caught. Um, and then there's a lot of reinforced experiences with that, um, because, you know, people, <laughs> you do get away with a lot of things. It's just that one time you don't, you really don't. Um, but... It isn't something that, like, I mean, to me, it's absurd that uh, a youth can go enlist and go to war, but they can't buy cigarettes or alcohol or weed. Right. Yep. They can. They can enlist. They can vote. They can go to the casino here in Michigan, but that's all they can do when they're eighteen. You know, I always used to wonder. It's like, huh. Why the magic age of 21? Who just arbitrarily decided on this age? Because just like you're saying, the the human brain um, is not fully developed at the age of 21, although that's the you know arbitrary number that we've uh, set for drinking and marijuana. And and it's interesting because um, uh, 
in prevention world, and, and this is prevention speak and, and, and an evidence-based program that I teach fairly often, and Suzanne went through the training on this, what it'll say is if you can delay the time of first use, that you've got um, less chance of becoming addicted later on. Okay, and they've got stats to back that, back that up and everything. But somehow they've managed to tie it to that magic number of 21, but there's no stats that I've ever seen that show why 21, it's just number. I also like to define first use because I've seen plenty of studies that say, um, processed sugar in a brain scan affects the same areas and looks the exact same as cocaine, just to a much lesser intensity. And so are all of these processed sugars we're just dumping down our children's throats first use? Good point. Is I that mean, triggering that reward center process that reshapes the 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 way that the um, emotional responses fire and and all those things the 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 actual neurological changes that addiction brings about? Like, I mean, sugar water is used as an anesthetic for um, circumcision when a baby's born. And so, I mean, where are we really defining this first use? Where are we really drawing these arbitrary lines of what is and isn't a mood-altering substance? Well, and, and I think you could make a good case for that, Tim, with the rates of, of um, you know, type 2 diabetes in our country that's just skyrocketed to the point where the health industry, you know, pre-COVID and actually pre, well, at least here in Michigan, um, all of a sudden I was being inundated by all these presentations of, oh, your, you know, um, health department or your local hospital is offering all these wonderful pre-diabetes classes for very low cost, da, 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 you know, jump on board. Well, the reason they were doing that is they were getting money because, you know, the cost of treatment for diabetes in this country is humongous um, and that, you know, I'm sure there are studies that can show probably and, and pinpoint at a certain time when Americans diets changed um, drastically that I'll bet you anything you could tie it to just what you're saying. The minute we started having more processed foods, more, um, you know, uh, high amounts of sugar and then boom, all of a sudden, you know, it, and it was funny because that's another, well, it's not funny, but I can remember my grandparents. Um, so I would say probably, you know, mid sixties, diabetes was thought of and the sort of build in this country that, oh, this is kind of just an automatic thing. It's in your genes and it's part of growing older and it's not. And, you know, that probably too was, once again, we get back into the, if there's a profit to be made, um, we're going to keep pushing it until somebody calls us on it and says, wait a minute, no, people are dying. This is really bad. We got to quit doing this. But Suzanne, I know you're listening because I see your head nodding. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, you know, back when, when I was a kid, McDonald's was something that you had maybe once a month as, as a treat. And now it was a treat. Kids nowadays are living off of it. Yep. You know, you have, you know, both parents working and, and, or a lot of single 
families where it's, you know, you're just getting off work, grabbing the kids and run through McDonald's and getting dinner, you know, and again, the, these single families, they, they're going for the cheaper food. The cheaper food is usually the processed food. And yep. My, my uncle, he had a degree in hotel restaurant management from Michigan State, and then he worked for Smucker's, you know, which was a family company, but jams and jellies. And he told me when I was in high school, and it's something that stuck with me all my life. He said, yep. He said, cover anything in salt and sugar and you'll get rich and Americans will buy it. And he wasn't wrong. He, you know, it's pretty much true. Um, and, you know, so it'd be interesting if there are any studies out there that linked like dietary habits to addiction habits. You know, I mean, I do, I'm just wondering if there isn't a, a connection uh, like Tim brought up kind of because the brain functions, you know, it, the same way. And I'm just wondering if there isn't some connections between, um, and of course, we've got all kinds of food addictions and issues and eating disorders that are the mental health part of that deal. Um, my sister was a, a, you know, a double whammy. Um, she, when, when her eating disorder um, kind of was at bay, then her alcoholism was worse. And if she had a handle on her alcoholism, then her eating disorder was worse. You know, she never kind of was able to manage um, them both at the same time. Yeah, there's a few questions that I've um, asked when I found uh, my, like the opportunity to um, of like the more medical side of uh, thinking in these where, and like that sugar one is one. And the other is the question of like poly substance use or poly addiction. Um, right. Where my, my personal experience and view and both personally in my addiction as well as the work I've done with other people is that like addiction is addiction is addiction yep. um substance is the dependence and that's a symptom yep um and they're diagnosed and coded and all that differently as like alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder and to a degree it makes sense because the regions of the brain the receptors that are affected are different the treatment has to be different um i mean it's not it, the notion this this classic notion of a one-size-fits-all treatment is just absurd um yeah i know I mean, you know you're right you need you need specialists to a degree to be the expert you know in an area because not everybody can be an expert on everything however in specialization, sometimes we've gone too far the opposite and our medical people and our treatment folks have become so specialized. And I'll even bring this back to prevention. I have a lot of colleagues that think prevention is only done with youth and nobody else. And I disagree with that. So, you know, we end up with these silos that are very one dimensional, um, I think is what you're getting at. Yes, you need the specialists, but not to, to the point where they're where um, they don't realize, like you're saying, that yes, you can be addicted to more than one thing, and and um, I think it, the root the root causes to addictions are what we're we're not we're not 
attacking those. <laughs> just, just a thought. I was just thinking, um, so we're looking at, the, there's like a whole generation that was affected by the opioid epidemic, um, typically like, I don't know, late 20s, 30s, maybe early, early 40s. And it's kind of interesting when you think about it because the gaming really came out during that generation. And I've heard before with now the kids playing these games that it affects the brain in the same way as drugs, you know, and, and alcohol and that they, it actually rewires the brain just like substances does. And you, and like I said, you look at that generation that was affected, really affected by the opioid epidemic, they were the ones that started really getting into all this gaming. And in, you wonder, because like I said, you had both parents working, there was a generation where both parents are working. So the TV and the, and the games were babysitting these kids and, and they still are, you know, just a thought. I mean, yeah, certainly, I, I, I've never heard, I've never seen, I mean, much evidence-wise either way, but like, I know I've witnessed people struggling with behavioral addictions that struggle just as much um, to, to, to get it under control or to stop or to um, practice any sort of harm reduction. Um, and I mean, there's not a substance there that's imposing a dependence or anything um but the effect in the brain is the same um what i've learned in this position uh, like working with a lot more on the medical side of it is that it like always comes down to dopamine like no matter what the substance or the behavior and it's the same three regions in the brain no matter what and so that's where I was going with the different diagnoses is like the process it takes to get there, the path it takes to get to these three spots may be different, but it's always that. And I haven't seen anything too quantitative with like video games or gambling or um, like sex or porn, um, but I imagine it's the same. Um, and that's where I, I'm coming from with addiction is addiction. Like one of my own personal experiences, like far before I'm thinking about using substances, like I, I see myself going into the same circular thought patterns about behaviors um, and just like that quick stimulation uh, that it changed my reality right now sort of thinking. Uh, to me, the problem of addiction is only made worse by substances because they usher in that uh, physical dependency component, right. uh, where it, it, somebody with an alcohol or benzo diazepine use can literally die from detox. Yeah. Um, opioid withdrawal, opioid detox is like the most, is just a traumatic experience in itself. Um, so that first time you, you try it, like you're permanently traumatized from trying it again because it's so just agonizing. Um, 
I don't know if you, I'm probably the oldest one, one here, but I'm thinking 25 years ago. Do you remember when stress was the big buzzword? Everybody, you know, the word stress as far as being used in the workplace and just in general about 25 years ago was, oh, you know, we had stress relief and stress this and, and I'm having this issue because I'm stressed. And um, I, there was a, a, a conference or a training or something they made me go to and it was called the mind body connection and like I said this is 25 years ago this was pretty um at the time fairly innovative stuff and I can't remember who the trainer was but really pointing out that the mind and the body are not separate okay and somebody figured that out 25 years ago but it didn't really even 20 it, it hadn't quite caught on yet and I think that's one of the things that that whether you're a prevention specialist or a recovery coach or a, what's your title there, Tim Hudson? I can't remember. Uh, behavioral health consultant. Okay, that. You get to be that. I want to be that. Anyway, <laughs> but this idea that the mind and the body are not separate, you know, I think we're starting to get there right now so that when we talk about root causes and whether video games or, or you know, divorce rate or parent or kids being left at home, I think all of these play a part. But the big, the, to put it in a nutshell, is that the mind and the body are connected. And when the mind says something feels emotionally hurtful, the solution is to find something usually to put in the body or to give the body or to have the body do that makes the mind feel better. You know, I mean, truly that's what it kind of synthesizes down to. And um, unfortunately, you know, these large systems that we're talking about, even our law enforcement, our, our medical professionals, everybody, we still have not completely embraced that idea. They guess they're not separate. They're, they're part of the whole. Um, and yeah, when you said that they were starting to embrace it like 25 years ago, I was I was like, wait, what did I miss? Because we have not embraced that now. Well, I said started. No, that's yeah. what I mean. I'm saying, uh, you know, to me, it was like, yeah. on, and yes, all will be well with the world, but not really, because although it was the big light bulb for me, you know, we, we haven't somehow, the rest of the world has not caught up with that. And, you know, we're still mired in our our stigmatized belief systems and you know i mean a lot of that um goes with with morality and culture and all that kind of stuff don't get me started but well from like a, a i guess sort of philosophical point of view um my thoughts on like things with stigma and things with uh like it being like substance use and both and mental health are both kind of like pushed aside. Yep. Um, and like not spoken of. Yeah. And like from a philosophical point of view, um, it's like if, if, I mean, this isn't the best example, but if Tim and I switched brains, like that classic, you know, sci fi movie theme, um, <laughs> you'd, it's not the best example because it's like you'd address him as Tim and me as Tim still. Um, but like, it, it would be like, say if you and I did, people talking to my body, if they knew, would refer to this body as Lisa. 
because we identify with the mind, uh, with the personality, with that so much more. As in, and so to think of it with substance use and mental health, it's so much more saying there's a problem with me than the, it is with the body. With the body being like a machine, you can just like fix it or get yes. a workaround yes. or, yes. or stopgap measure or something like that. It's so much more mechanical. Exactly. Um, you take that personal part of it away. And, and yes, so um, we, we pretty much have objectified people in treatment and in medicine because, um, you know, let's face it, even folks that are in the business of helping, we can be traumatized by what we oh, see. Yeah witness and so i i think the thought was you know we are somehow protecting ourselves i used to get this all the time oh you have to have better boundaries and it's like how can i get people to trust me and open up if i don't like really get real and honest and share my story with them because i'm kind of all out there if you haven't figured it out <laughs> and honestly i have not changed my stance on that in 58 years i think it's better to be um more open and honest than the other. Um, but, you know, yeah, I completely get what you're saying that, yes, in fact, my daughter works in the medical field and I was like, um, I, she actually is a tech and, um, you know, just dealing with human bodies, they do, they train people not to really look, smell, see, too close, you know, it's just a machine that I have to fix you know, um, and not really realizing that that person is emotions and memories and feelings and all that good stuff. I'm a big um, believer in, um, if you've ever read Brene Brown at all, she considers herself a shame expert. And if you haven't read anything by her, you should, you should read something. It's an easy read, but she talks about the emotion of shame, which all emotions have their place, um, and they do, and they have a purpose. But we, as Americans, have really gotten good at that um, shaming of people in a lot of ways. And, and truly, that shaming is, is what, you know, where the lovely new buzzword stigma came from, because we like to shame people. And, and we use that as a way of controlling people to do what we want. So if I make you feel bad, you know, we do it with little kids. Well, you should be ashamed of yourself. I got that when I was a little kid and I didn't even know what the heck they were talking about. I just knew somebody was unhappy with me and whatever I did, I better not do it again. Um, but I think we do the same thing with, with folks with mental health issues. And truly, I, I think that, um, SUD is, is a co-occurring part of an underlying mental health disorder most of the time. That's just me, and I'm not a doctor, so. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I agree. I think that, like, I, I think that one of the most frustrating things I've ever done is read through the um, sections of the DSM and yeah. uh, um, all the qualifiers and overlapping symptoms and all of those things, and it's just, like, it, it's to me it all it all just it's all goes back to trauma yep exactly. uh, and, and it really it's just a different manifest manifestation a different um, I mean, for I, I don't even want to begin to talk about like the complexity of how it would evolve um because i i have no idea um but 
a different presentation of trauma that like, I don't know, compounds over time. And um, when I think about it, it's like, I always try to, and this is something I do with patients when I work in the clinic a lot is to think about it in the terms of like, physical kind of like under tangible terms of like evolution when we evolved humans evolved to have brains the way that we do we were living out and we were like foragers we were scavengers we were um not in a like society like in a civilization we, we may have had a little clan but like we we hunted we we that was our source of living we had legitimate like life and death worries at all right. times. Like anxiety is what put us to the top of the food chain because we could plan about these dangers. Yep. Um, socially. That's what I mean about those emotions having their place, you know? Yeah. And but social right. evolution has, tra has greatly outpaced it. Yes. And so we still have that same brain. Right. Our and, but we have nothing to worry about. Right. And that Our time, tells us that we're going to die and that we, you know, because of a fear or an anxiety or something. And so our brain is telling us, this is terrible. This is awful. You got to do something. And, and in uh, that time, we didn't live long enough for our traumas right. to resurface. Right. Like if you, historically you look back, like 20s, 30s is like an old age. Yeah. Um, and so it's like now that we don't have all these worries and we, we live longer, our traumas actually surface when our brains evolved to be this way under the assumption that we'd never have to deal with that, that surfacing. It would just sit down there and it would be compartmentalized and packed away. And then it, that, that was a necessity to live. Right. Uh, but now we don't have that same requirement. And so it manifests in all these harmful ways because it, it can't just sit down there. So do you think, um, you know, so a, a, a big treatment, another buzzword these days, and it doesn't come up so much in prevention. Oh, so it does, because it's a big thing in schools these days. Mindfulness. <laughs> so I, I don't have anything against mindfulness, just, just so you know. <laughs> I think, though, it's become the, the solution, though, um, the, so many things that are a good thing to begin with and get overused, but, you know, mindfulness to me, and I'll give you my, my quick definition is being in the here and now, rather than worrying about the future or being stuck in the past. Um, and so, you know, then there's the meditation piece. If you're good at that, I found out that I am not good at meditation. I, I can do it for about 10 minutes is my tops and I do better with guided meditation than just trying to do it on my own um but you know so meditation it, apparently there are studies that say that we that through mindfulness and meditation you can actually change some of that um what I'll call prehistoric brain structure that you're talking about Tim you know the anxiety the fear um, the racing thoughts, your more obsession, compulsion kind of kind of thing. Um, what do you think that that mindfulness plays in um, both either prevention or treatment or recovery or all of the above? 
Um, I've never thought of it in terms of prevention, so I couldn't really, um, I, I can't really say I have much of an opinion there. I've just never thought of it in that context, um, but I'm going to now, but um, yeah, they, they use it in schools to calm kids down that are overactive and stuff, and they're actually teaching mindfulness techniques quite a bit in school, um, and as a behavior modifier, shall we say. Meditation and mindfulness are like huge components of my recovery. Um, I think that it being a buzzword, as, as you pointed out, you love the buzzwords, I know. Um, <laughs> It is always um, simplified and um, it, it is, uh, to me, it is a, a lot broader. Um, I, I don't even know how to say this correctly. Um, living in the here and now is definitely like an inadequate, um, like, cert, like a brief definition um, but the whole thing with meditation and like, I mean, first of all, there's no good and bad meditating. It just like is and isn't. So, I mean, 10 minutes is, you know, that's 10 minutes. Um, but it, 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 it takes, for me, it takes the component of not just living in the here and now, because like the past and the future do affect my here and now but it's understanding what I feel now so that I can, it's, it's what I'm feeling and thinking. Like how are the, the, that connection occurring? Because that's the only way I can really identify what sort of things from my past are causing these feelings. Um, and like, I have found that like certain thoughts of certain traumas that like I won't even realize I'm thinking but I will get a feeling in my body like a certain pain in my abdomen like and when I get that feeling it is because I'm having a, a and I've identified a specific event a specific trauma in my life is affecting me at that point in time I had consciously didn't realize it but when I re-examine it in that context I can see how my behavior is different because it is focused it has that influence on it um i can see how my my decision making and my my just the way i'm like my everything is being affected by that specific event um and, and so it's not just simply a, a sit down and like that's where it begins that's the practice of it but it, it's i read once i think it was i can't remember who wrote the book I mean it was some uh figure like the Dalai Lama but it wasn't the Dalai Lama but it was in that like um where like meditation is like practice and like a recharging thing and that like you do it so that you can go about life with that sort of perspective um because it, it's it's easy to like sit relatively at least easy to like sit down and and think about one thing or like when you're just in your room not disturbed but when you're out in the world and you have all these distractions like it's not easy um 
And so like the point of mindfulness to me isn't just to do it every now and then when I meditate, but to be able to practice it at all times. Sure. Um, like I, I practice one of mine is like when I'm waiting in line, you know, most people these days are pulling out their phones um, like at the grocery store or something, they're, they're distracting themselves with something and I'll, I'll just kind of close my eyes and just kind of like pay attention to all of what I'm hearing um, and just kind of make it to where it's just like one sound. And to me, that, that's practiced for that when I have that intense feeling. I, I, I like in trauma, when a trauma is triggered and we don't know it yet and it can be triggered by like anything, it's like being drugged. Right. Um, because you have an intense experience, but you don't know why. Um, for all you know, you shouldn't be having it. Um, and it's, it's through that like mindfulness that I've been able to actually identify those things. Yeah, that triggering is a, always an interesting thing to me because you know, as much as I've learned over the years, um, I've had some experiences where, where I've been triggered by something and I never saw it coming. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. The feeling's familiar. It's like, how did I get here? Where did yeah. this come from? You know, I, I bet. Now, I will say that, you know, if you if you have a trigger with me, it's depression. But um, if you have a triggering experience that sends you, you know, back into a, a traumatized state, if you know that, usually it's, you know, each episode tends to be a little bit shorter because of the knowledge. But it doesn't mean that you're forever cured is what uh -huh. I figured out. It, it's like, nope, it's going to happen again someday. And the trick is to be able to recognize it. Yeah, from what I can tell. There's no like cure to trauma. Nope, not really. Um, and that's the same with like when it gets down to it to me, like substance use, um, where uh, like because I mean for me it is closely associated with trauma. Like when I have trauma triggered is when my mind will go back to that pattern of just like circular thought and um, that was your go-to back in the day yeah yep i hear you that's for sure well suzanne there how'd i do did i fill up your time sufficiently i'm about talked out i know that's hard to believe but actually tim when you were talking about standing in line at the grocery store and you know closing your eyes to meditate i one of my therapists that I had a couple years back, you know, we'd be talking and I was going through a, a, a time at the time and, and he wouldn't do it for very long, but he'd be looking at me and his eyes would shut for maybe 10 seconds. And, and I, I think he was, I think he was doing some mindfulness, some kind of medit. He wasn't falling asleep or anything, but, but I was conscious of it and I never was quite, um, um, assertive enough to say why do you keep closing your eyes at me every because <laughs> he probably would have told me because they're a little hard to take on certain days <laughs> and i mean it, it is uh, even like 10 seconds i've experienced can be like such a like resetting experience um yeah and honestly, i think like so i said that that's what he was doing yep 
and, and it's just to kind of like bring it back to recognize that like the, the what's actually happening isn't what I'm telling myself is happening. Right. Um, and yeah, like I agree with you completely about that awareness with trauma and that like is the recognizing it makes a world of difference. Like that when it's I mean, I, when I say that, that experience of being drugged, I, I like have a specific moment that I reference back to that I experienced um, when, when I was in my addiction where I was given a substance that I thought was different and had a different experience than I was expecting to. I thought the worst of it at the time. And then when I was told to correct, like, this is what you actually took, my entire experience changed because I knew why I was there. Um, and it's the same thing with trauma. It may not be so immediate, but like when I recognize that something has been triggered, my relationship to it, to the experience just changes dramatically. Um, and that for me, the only way I've been able to practice that awareness and to like, has been through mindfulness. Um, so, I mean, for me, it's hugely important. It takes, it requires a lot of like, um, very uncomfortable introspection. Isn't that the truth? I used to tell people it's like eating your spinach. I mean, unless you really like spinach, it's like it, it you may not like it, but it's good for you. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not easy. It's not comfortable, but it's, well, that's what I, you know, it's called a practice or, you know, or even, you know, going to therapy. It, it's work. You have to do the hard work. 